This time I'd like to invite children to head back for Children's Church, ages 3 to kindergarten, 3 to 5 years old. Uh, If you have kids in that age range, they're welcome to head back to Children's Church. If you're a visitor and you have kids in that age range, you're welcome to send them back, or you can keep your uh, 3 to 5-year-olds with us. That is your choice. But if you want to go back there, there's a group there with my wife Maggie who will be leading, so I'm sure you'll have a wonderful time together. As they're heading back, I'd invite the rest of us to turn to the book of 1 Peter. Look at First Peter, that's where we're starting this morning. We're going to be in First Peter starting now and basically until Christmas. So that's what our next few months are going to look like, hanging out in this book. And there's a lot here for us. And I've been excited to, to get to First Peter, I think, for years now. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. I invite you to turn to First Peter. Right before Second Peter, funnily enough. Um, right after James. That's just a little Bible joke for you. You may have also noticed that next to, I believe, our bulletins, there are little Bible journals that we have that are just the text of First and Second Peter with columns on the side for note-taking. If you want to take one of those, those are free, those are available to you, and if we run out, we'll get more. So we have those little Bible journals available out there if you would like, and you can use those as we go through First Peter. I believe there's also a book called Evangelism as Exiles that's on the resource table that would be helpful as... Uh, We think of this theme of exiles, and we'll get into it today. There's a resource there on the resource table that I think might be worth your time. Evangelism is exiles. I invite you to stand with me if you like, if you're able. I'm just going to read the first two verses of the introduction, and then I'll turn over to the end, and we're going to read the last three verses, and it's kind of the closing, the final greeting. So just a few verses for us this morning in the introduction and in the close. I'm reading from the ESV which says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience of Jesus, to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then in the closing, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we pray that you would help us as we start this book, First uh, Peter, this letter uh, to the Christians in dispersion. As we are scattered about in this world, Lord, I pray that this letter would um, speak to us in a significant way, that it would alter and change us, that we would not leave unaffected, even in the greeting, even in the closing. That we would be impacted and changed by your word. We know that your word has the power by the Spirit to create life, to change life. And we pray for that this morning. Pray for those who are in children's church, our kids, that you would plant gospel seeds, that you may call out the elect by your word and by your Spirit. We thank you for your grace this morning and we worship you. Amen. 
How many of you are familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress show, fans? How many of you have read it? I think I saw more hands that read it. No, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Um, if you haven't read the Pilgrim's Progress, as your pastor, I would commend you, read it before you die. Uh, I, I think you can get into heaven without having read it, but I'm not, I'm not certain. So I, I just want you to... I would encourage you to read Pilgrim's Progress. It's written by John Bunyan of Prioritan. It was written while he was in prison for preaching the gospel. And he wrote Pilgrim's Progress as an allegory, a story, a dream for the Christian life. And in the story, Christian, the main character, learns that the city that he and his family live in, the city of destruction, is going to be consumed by fire. So... Christian determines to travel to the celestial city so that he might be saved. Unable at first to convince his wife and his kids to go with him, he makes the journey alone, but he meets many people along the way. And Christian, as he goes, uh, travels from the city of destruction to the celestial city, he encounters all the trials and challenges and temptations of life. He comes across despair. He comes across temptation. He comes across the temptation of pleasure and vanity and Bad counsel and good counsel. And all along the way, the Pilgrim's Progress shows us, I think, just the normal Christian life and what we experience. And one of those experiences is difficulty. There's a scene in the book where Christian is about to ascend the hill of difficulty. And after drinking from a spring until he is no longer thirsty, he begins to make his way. And he says, The hill, though high, I desire to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way to life lies here. Be strong, my heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. It's better to go up the hill of difficulty it's the right way to go than to live in, in ease where the end is woe. I was thinking about this because you and I are pilgrims. Not with the hats and the buckles and all that. But we are pilgrims traveling to a holy place. A pilgrim is someone who's not at home, but is making a pilgrimage, traveling to a holy place that they are looking to. And just like Christian, we, as we are on our pilgrimage, will face trials and difficulties, temptations, challenges. But we go that way because we know we live in the city of destruction and we cannot stay here. And there's another city, a celestial city, that is truly our home. Does that describe your understanding of your own life and where you are headed? Do you feel like you are on a pilgrimage? Do you know that this is not ultimately your home, this earth broken and fallen as it is? Increasingly, 
as we grow as Christians, as we make our pilgrimage, we should increasingly feel like this is not our home. That we don't truly belong here. In her book called Faithfully Different, author Natasha Crane writes that Christians more and more are feeling out of place in today's world. She writes, Christians have always faced the challenge of remaining distinct from the world. However, something new has happened. And something new is happening. If you've been feeling that our culture is rapidly changing in some unique ways, you're right. Do you feel that? Do you feel like our culture, our world is changing? It's increasingly different from, if not hostile to, a biblical Christianity. Christians have always been pilgrims in this world. We've always been strangers in a strange land. But I do think the land is getting stranger. We can point at all sorts of different uh, indicators that we are in a strange land. It is now accepted to mutilate children in the name of affirmation and profit for hospitals. And pay attention to laws passed in California that are setting the stage for parents to be removed from their kids, kids to be removed from their parents if the parents don't affirm the gender of their children, their chosen gender. Look at the continuing increase of the unborn slaughtered, the seemingly increased desire to sexualize young people, increased division and hostility between cultures and ethnicities, and I think there's a decreased appreciation for life itself. We are more and more uncomfortable with the idea of ending life for the, those who are discomforted by it. You see increased universalism, pluralism, the idea that God would never condemn anyone in any old faith and belief is just as good as the other. I think a number of you could be fired for saying some of the things I say on a Sunday morning here. You may feel that tension. Some of you may not. Some of you certainly do. That your livelihood and existence is on the line if you're going to affirm a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview increasingly is in the minority. And we're going to have to get comfortable with this as Christians, that we are truly, if we are Christian, in the minority. It used to be that a majority would affirm Christianity, and many still do, but that number is dropping rapidly, even the number of people who would affirm that they are Christians and say that they are Christians. We, as Christians, are, by every indication, every stat, every measure, we are becoming more and more in the minority. So we are going to have to learn what it is to be a minority for those who hold a holistic biblical worldview. Are we comfortable with being strangers and aliens in this world? In her book, Natasha Crane also quotes the great Christian thinker Francis Schaeffer. This is a long quote, but I want you to stick with me on it. 
Francis Schaeffer said a number of years ago, Christianity is no longer providing the consensus for our society. And Christianity is no longer providing the consensus on which our law is based. That is not to say that the United States was ever a Christian nation. There is no golden age in the past which we can idealize, whether it is early America, the Reformation, or the early church. But until recent decades, something did exist which can rightly be called a Christian consensus or ethos which gave a distinctive shape to Western society and the two United States in a definite way. Now that consensus is all but gone. All that society has today are relativistic values based on statistical averages or the arbitrary decisions of those who hold legal and political power. Does that feel like an accurate assessment? All that I'm trying to say in this somewhat lengthy introduction is that we are not at home. As Christians, we are strangers in a strange land, and we will feel increasingly not at home. And the question is, as pilgrims, how do we find our way? How do we make our way to the celestial city? How do we make our pilgrimage in this foreign land? And that's what 1 Peter is all about. 1 Peter is written to those who are scattered, who aren't at home. And it's a book for those who want to make their way there. We're just going to study the first two verses and the final greeting, the last three. And then these first two verses, and in the last three verses, I think Peter introduces a theme that kind of runs throughout the whole book. And that theme, our theme for this morning, is gospel encouragement for Christian pilgrims. That theme is introduced and it's reiterated in the introduction and in the closing. Gospel encouragement for Christian pilgrims. For those of you who feel not at home, for those of you who are weary by being a minority in this world, here's encouragement for you. Here's gospel encouragement for Christian pilgrims. I want to focus on three things, just very simply, to guide our way through. First, we're going to focus on the writer. Then we're going to focus on the audience. And then we'll focus on the encouragement. Really simple. Writer, audience, encouragement. Let's first look at the writer. Let's think about who the writer is of 1 Peter. And, spoiler alert, it's Peter. So you look at 1.1, which says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here's our writer. And chapter 5, verse 12, we also read, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So Peter is the writer, he's the author, and he is sending his message by way of Silvanus. Silvanus is a faithful brother, he is known also as Silas in the New Testament, and he would have delivered this letter to the audience. So Peter wrote it down. It may be that Peter spoke it, and Silvanus was the one who dictated it, which is called an amanuensis. But... At the very least, Silvanus is the one who brought the letter, and he's the one who carried it. He's the messenger. Which begs the question, raises the question of, why would Peter need somebody to send a letter for him? It's because Peter can't travel. Peter is imprisoned in Rome. We think when he wrote this, that Peter was in prison, probably with Paul, in Rome. We know from tradition uh, that Peter was likely killed about 64, 65 AD, about 30 years after Christ resurrected. 
So this letter was probably written in a couple years before then, about 62, 63 AD, 30 years after Jesus' life on earth. Peter writes, uh, tradition has it that Peter was hanged upside down on a cross, executed in Rome. Hanged on a cross, but hanged upside down because he requested that he not be hanged like his Savior was. He wasn't worthy to be hanged right side up. That's the tradition. But we know Peter was executed for his faith, which is an amazing end for somebody like Peter. Many of you know your Bibles, you know your your gospel stories, you know the New Testament. Who was Peter? And when Peter comes to mind, who do you think of? Peter often, the, the, the first to rush in, right? The first to say something, the first to do something. So Peter was the first of the disciples to, to make that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And then just a few moments later, rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to die on the cross. <laughs> Peter started out frightened by Jesus. When Jesus first called Peter, Jesus helped Peter by making a miraculous catch of fish. Peter then realized very quickly and intuitively, I'm not dealing with just any old minister here. This is somebody sent from, the son of, from God, maybe even the Son of God. So, so Peter says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Terrified of Jesus at the first. Peter had his flaws. He also had his triumphs. We, we often forget that there were two men who walked on water. Jesus and Peter. And we can criticize him for, for looking away and falling, but he was the only one who got out of the boat. Peter knows what it's like to fail. Peter's the one who boldly declared, we'll never turn from you, Jesus. And is the one who denied knowing Jesus three times on the night of his trial and arrest. If you're a person who's worried about the pressure of the world and worried that you might not be able to make the grand stand for Jesus, Peter's a friend. He knows what it's like to fail his Savior. And he knows what it's like to be restored by Jesus. The last interaction we read of Peter and Jesus in the Gospels in John is Jesus restoring Peter. Three times asking Peter, do you love me? Once for every denial. A full restoration. And then from there, Peter becomes the leader. He is the leader of the apostles. He's the first one to preach a Christian sermon in Acts 2. He is one who will not stop proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. He is an apostle. As the introduction tells us, he is an apostle of Jesus. And in the New Testament time, there were many apostles. There were a lot of people who were sent out. That's what that word apostle means. A lot of people were sent out as messengers for Jesus. But then there are the apostles, the, the formal apostles, the, the twelve and Paul. And the, those apostles, kind of the capital A apostles, were the ones who were set apart by Jesus himself, those who had seen Jesus both in his life and his resurrection before and after his crucifixion, and who were formally set apart to establish the foundation of the church, the doctrines of the church. Peter 
Peter was amongst those who were kind of the early established uh, ones with authority to speak on behalf of God himself. You'll notice here it says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. One commentator noted that in the New Testament you don't read uh, a teacher of Jesus Christ or a shepherd of Jesus Christ or an evangelist of Jesus Christ. That very wording specifically of Jesus Christ is reserved here for an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's somebody who had authority of God himself. So I say that as, as a comfort as you read the words of Peter, no, this is a guy who failed, and he was just like you, and just like you and I in that regard. And also, as you read these words of Peter, know that he is one who was sent by God to establish the truth and doctrine of the church, to establish God's teaching in this world. So he has authority, and as you're reading this, you're not just reading the words of a man. As we hear this, this is not just Peter's opinion for you. These are the words of Christ himself, of God himself for us. They have authority And Peter establishes that here. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ and a friend writing to you. So who is the you? That's the writer. Who's the audience? That's what I want to talk about next. The audience. Verse 1 1 says, look at verse 1 with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Who is this letter to? Very often in New Testament letters, you'll have the similar kind of greeting if you go through 1 Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, whatever letter you're looking at, you'll see kind of standard markers of a greeting. Paul to somebody, and often the words like grace and peace in Christ to you. Those are a standard, not insignificant words. Those are great words, but they're standard words in a greeting. And when you're studying a New Testament letter, and you're looking at the introduction of the greeting, one helpful thing to do is look at what are the unique features of this greeting? What are the words that are different from other places that aren't there in Galatians, Ephesians, or other letters? What, what words stand out as unusual in the greeting? There's a couple words here that are unusual, that stand out. Elect exiles. That's who Peter is writing to. Elect exiles. Let's think about those two words for a moment. First, exiles. The NASB translated aliens. New English translation says, those temporarily residing. There's a lot of synonyms for this word that get the same point across. Strangers, aliens, sojourners, exiles, immigrants, pilgrims. That's who we're talking to. People who are not home yet, who are residing in a foreign land. That's who this letter is written to. That is the people of God throughout history. Go all the way back. Who is Adam? An exile from the garden. Adam, by their own choice, by their own consequence, but they're exiled from the garden, which was their true home, sent to wander. Abraham, the father, ultimate father of the nation of Israel. Who is he? He is a wanderer. He was promised the promised land, but he never really lived there. He spent his days sojourning, wandering, Jacob and Joseph, 
Who were they? They were wanderers. Not in the promised land, they lived their lives in Egypt. That's where Israel was birthed. Israel was birthed in exile, as strangers, as aliens, as captives in Egypt, in a foreign land. And spent many years wandering, even as they were released from Egypt, before they settled in Israel. And they didn't stay in Israel forever, by their own sin. They were conquered as a consequence of, for their sin, for their rejection of God, for their idolatry, they were conquered by neighboring enemies, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And what happened to them? They were exiled from Israel. In 587 BC, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, and they are sent into exile. And from that moment, the Jewish people were what? Exiles scattered. Known as the, the diaspora, the dispersion. The Jewish people, ever since... 587 B.C. never really had Israel as their home, but were scattered about in foreign places. People of God were exiles from the beginning and have always been. There's a chapter in your Bible, Hebrews 11, known as the Hall of Faith, and talks about the great heroes of the Old Testament. And Hebrews 11 says of these heroes, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I say this all to underline, Christian, you are a pilgrim. You are an exile. You're a stranger in this world. Why is that important? When I do premarital counseling, I often bring up a a concept that I think is helpful for those getting ready to be married. So This is for free, Cal. You can take (laughs) The concept is idealistic distortion. Just by those two words, you might be able to guess what I'm getting at. Idealistic distortion is... When you have a distorted view of something, you idealize it, and you aren't quite really comprehending all that lies in store for you. And often in engaged couples, you have to help prepare them for what to actually expect, because reality is different than what you think it might be. And you're going to learn things about your spouse that you say, oh man, I did not know that's what I signed up for. And my idealized version of marriage has to crumble a little bit and I have to replace it with reality. Now, reality is often better and worse than what you imagine. It's different. But you need to have a reality check. We, as Christians in exile, I think, often have idealistic distortion. We think things ought to be better than they are. We have a distorted view of what our life should be like while we are wandering in pilgrimage. And then we wonder, what is happening? Why did I get the bad news? Why did I get fired? Why are all these things happening? Why is it harder than I thought it would be? How come the more I grow as a Christian, I seem to be more cognizant of my sin and not less? How come things aren't perfect? How come I'm not in heaven yet? And here, Peter is reminding you, hey, you're in exile. Remember, this ain't heaven yet. It's a reality check for you. You are a stranger in this world. Quit trying to make it heaven. That's not to say you don't try to make the world better around you, you don't try to improve your life, but be real about what you should expect while living in this world. You are not home. 
And this is not heaven. And you can try and put all the rules in place in your own home, in your own family, and try to get total perfection in your own family. And guess what? It ain't going to happen because you are not home yet. So Christians understand this. I think this concept will change your life if you understand it or don't understand it. If you think that this is home and this is all there is, then all of your life will be wrapped up in trying to find success and prosperity and comfort and ease in this life and you will be perpetually frustrated and angered because it's never going to happen. You will never be perfect. Your context will never be perfect. It's not here. So don't put your heart there. Isn't this what Jesus tells us? He warns us about this. In the world you will have trouble. That's a promise from Jesus. Be encouraged, I have overcome the world. Jesus warned us, hey, if the world hates me, you as my followers will be hated. Jesus told us not to store treasures here. Why? Because things corrupt here. Where should we be making our investment? Where moth and rust do not destroy. Jesus told us it's worth selling everything we have in this world to purchase land that belongs in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told us constantly, look forward, look to the future, like the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith, who did not consider their rest to be here, but the rest and the promise of rest is always future, always forward. Why? Because you're a stranger and an alien in this world. And I would say to you, if you do not feel out of place in this world, that should be a warning sign. You are becoming comfortable in the city of destruction. You should feel a little bit out of place. Why? Because you're in exile. Second important word there, a comforting word. You're a chosen exile. You're an elect exile. A chosen pilgrim. A selected immigrant. A predestined alien. You are one that God has chosen. That's language straight from Israel. That concept, that word chosen, elect, that's word that God uses for his people, Israel, Deuteronomy 7. You are a chosen people, my treasured possession. Out of all nations, I've chosen you. I've loved you. You are selected. Peter here is using this term, selected, and applying it to Christians. To the scattered Christians about Turkey, around ancient Asia, you're just like Israel. Later in the book, we'll find out that who are these people that Peter's writing to. That they're not Hebrew people. I don't think the majority of them. He'll talk about them being redeemed from a former way of life that was out of whack. Redeemed from a feudal way of life. They used to act like pagans. And he's talking, I think, to pagan people who formerly lived pagan lives. They were not Jewish people. They were not Israel. But they found Jesus. And because they are in Christ, Peter will say, you are Israelites. You are elect exiles. Just as the Israelites were always wandering on earth, so you 
are always wandering on earth, but you are God's chosen people just like them. So just like Israel in continuity with the nation of Israel, the church, you Christians, are chosen people of God. And that is to be an encouragement to them. In all your wanderings and all your exile, just know you are God's chosen people. And that's the encouragement. I want to close there as we think about what is the encouragement that Peter has for his audience. We talked about the writer, the audience, the elect exiles of dispersion. Now let's consider the encouragement that Peter gives them. What encouragement does he give to strangers in a strange land? First, look at verse 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'm going to stop there. In his introduction and in his closing, which we'll get to in a moment, I think Peter gives two main sources of encouragement for those wandering in exile, for the Christians. God and the church. Let's first talk about God. We'll get to the church after. He roots his encouragement for these people in the triune God. Do you notice the Trinity at work here in verse 2? Look at your Bibles. Where do you see the Trinity? You know, that doctrine of the Trinity, people say, well, that wasn't developed until hundreds of years later in church councils, and I think Constantine had something to do with it, out of ignorance, people say. And, you know, the Trinity doctrine didn't come to later. Well, no, it was rooted in what Peter and Paul say in the New Testament. It's rooted in scripture passages like this, where the Trinity is there, right from the pages of scripture and the pen of the apostles. Do you see the Trinity here? Do you see how the encouragement is rooted in God himself and his work in saving his people? First, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge. God knew you beforehand. And that, that knowing there, that's not just a knowing of something, just a knowing a fact or a piece of data. That is a relational knowing. What it's saying is, God knew you personally beforehand. Before you were ever born, before you're ever called, before you're ever wandering in this life, going through the trials and tribulations and sufferings that you are now, before all then, God knew you personally. The Father knew you and loved you. That is the encouragement. And knowing you and loved you, he sanctified you by the Spirit. The second person of the Trinity mentioned here. You're sanctified in the Spirit, chosen be sanctified in the Spirit. What incredible comfort that is. You, Christian, in exile, you're not alone. And you don't have to do this by your own power. In fact, you can't. You have the Spirit that God has given you to make you holy. Be encouraged. And for the sprinkling the blood of Christ. For obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Father, Spirit, and Son, all at work in what? In saving you. I think that word obedience there, for obedience to Jesus Christ, is actually a reference to our initial obedience in responding to the call of God. It's our first obedience to him is when we say yes to Jesus Christ. That's what that's referring to. 
God issues a call, come and follow me and my son Jesus Christ. And our first obedience is to say yes and amen to him. And that's what Peter's referring to. That obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. You have an obligation to respond in obedience, but salvation is not your work. Whose work is it? Your salvation is the work of Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of his blood, which cleanses and purifies and sets you apart, just like the blood of sacrifices set apart the people of Israel, cleansed them and sanctified them, so the blood of Jesus Christ sets you apart in your salvation. What does that mean? It means that none other than the triune God is working for you and in you to save you in this world. There are a lot of challenges, a lot of trials, suffering, but look at the one who has your back, Christian. It is Father, Son, and Spirit working in unison for your salvation. I don't know what better encouragement to offer than that. The God who made everything, the Spirit who empowers His people, the Son who saved you, are all at work in your life. But there's more encouragement to be had, so we turn to the end of the book. In verses 12 through 14. Peter writes, By a Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter sends his greetings along with Mark, and that is the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark traveled with Peter and with Paul. Probably got most of his material from Peter. So we have the Gospel of Mark, and that's Mark the Gospel writer. He sends greetings to you, Christians who are scattered about Asia. But there's greetings from somebody else. Who is that? She who is at Babylon. Who's that lady? It's a strange phrase because Babylon at this time was basically deserted. At the time of Peter's writing this letter, the time of the New Testament, Babylon was no longer a prominent city. It was essentially a deserted, destroyed, run-down city. We also have no record of Peter, or really any of the other apostles, ever visiting there. Like, I don't think Peter ever went to what once was Babylon. So there's a strange thing that this lady from Babylon greets them. Who is that? Well, she is the church. And Babylon is Rome. Remember I said, where was Peter writing from? Roman prison. What he's saying is, the church who is here in Rome greets you, is with you, give each other a kiss, affection from she who is in Babylon. Why would Peter call Rome Babylon? Rome was the most powerful city in the world, the center of the Roman Empire, the center of the kingdom of man, opposed to God and his people. And throughout Revelation, if you read Revelation, you'll hear Rome 
called Babylon. And what Peter is saying is, we also are in exile with you, because we also are living in the kingdom of man that is opposed to God. We're in Babylon. We are exiled just as you. Christian, please understand this. The center of power in the Roman Empire, Rome, the New Testament calls Babylon. The powerful kingdoms of this world, the New Testament calls Babylon. The USA, is it Israel or is it Babylon? Man, if I really want to get emails, I could say some stuff. Um, (laughs) Think about what you're doing when you pledge allegiance. Man, I, I love our nation. I really do. We are afforded incredible privileges that are essentially uh, unparalleled throughout history because of the influence of the kingdom of God in our land, not because of the kingdom of man. And the more the kingdom of God recedes into the background and the more the kingdom of man, man gets into the foreground, you will see that we are not Israel as the United States. We are Babylon, a nation destined for destruction, just like Rome, just like Russia, just like China, just like any other kingdom of earth, it is destined for destruction. So remember, this place that we live in, as much as we may love it, it ain't home. It's a wicked empire set to fall. Where is your allegiance, Christian? And that brings up all sorts of questions. How do we interact in Babylon? How do we live in Babylon? Do we serve Babylon? Do we submit to Babylon? Do we rebel against Babylon? Do we try and destroy Babylon? How do we live here? Those are the questions that First Peter is here to answer. And this is a huge question in the church today. A huge question. How much do the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God interact with each other and intersect? And how, where are our allegiances as we try and think through our place in Babylon? And those are things we're going to unpack through First Peter, which is why I'm so excited about this book. Because Peter's writing, reminding Christians, hey, wherever you are, whatever kingdom you are living in, remember, you're in exile, just like we are. We're in Babylon too. And I think he writes that as an encouragement, saying, hey, we're with you. You're not alone. The church, we're all in the same boat together. It's like when one spouse and husband goes on a diet so the wife does with him. Solidarity. Some, like somebody who shaves their head for their partner who has cancer, goes through chemo. When we're, we're with you. We're on the same team. That's what Peter's saying. We're in exile too. And we're in this together. Be encouraged as you wander. God has known you from before you were ever born. He has given you his spirit and sanctified you. He has given you the blood of Jesus Christ that saves you. And you're not alone in all your wandering and all your pilgrimage. The church is with you and we love you. That's Peter's message as he sets up this book. It's gospel encouragement for Christian pilgrims. And now the question is, how do we stand firm? Did you catch that in there? That's that's his command at the end. His last command Besides greeting each other with a holy kiss, his last command is, stand firm. So how do we do that? 
And they'll say, come back next week. That's what we're going to spend the next few months talking about. How do we stand firm in the grace of Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word that reminds us and encourages us. We're not at home yet, but we will be. And one day this world, as we'll see in this book, this world will be transformed and perfected and made new, and we look forward to that day. That's where our hope is. It's in the future. It's not in this present day. But in the present day, we have to live here, and we want to live as your faithful people. So I pray over the next few months you would help us to do that more faithfully, to give you praise and honor while we sojourn, while we are immigrants, chosen by you. Thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. May he sustain us by your spirit. Amen.